It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. It's been more than 40 years since the Supreme Court first considered affirmative action, and now its new conservative majority is signaling it's ready to eliminate the consideration of race in college admissions. In oral arguments on challenges to affirmative action programs at the University of North Carolina and Harvard College, several conservative justices suggested it had run its course, referring to the 2003 Grutter decision in which Justice Sandra Day O'Connor anticipated the use of racial preferences would no longer be necessary in 25 years. Here are Chief Justice John Roberts and Justice Amy Coney Barrett. You don't think that University of North Carolina has to stop in 25 years, in the, the 2028 mark. So what are you saying when you're up here in 2040? Are you still defending it? Like this is just indefinite, it's going to keep going on? I don't see how you can say that the program will ever end. Your position is that race matters because it's necessary for diversity, which is necessary for the sort of education you want. It's not going to stop mattering at some particular point. My guest is former United States Solicitor General Gregory Garr, a partner at Latham & Watkins. He won the landmark case of Fisher versus the University of Texas, which upheld the race-conscious admissions program used by that university. Greg, looking at the legal analysis after the arguments, it seems that... The almost universal conclusion was that the court is ready to throw out the consideration of race in college admissions. Did you come to that conclusion as well? I did. I mean, I think certainly based on the oral arguments, it appeared as though the challengers had the upper hand. And, you know, that's not surprising going in. But having said that, there's a lot that remains to be seen about how the court gets that result and how broadly it might go in these cases. During the arguments, there seemed to be a great focus on whether educational diversity can be achieved without the consideration of race specifically with race-neutral approaches. Does that indicate the justices are on to the next step? I think that it means that they're focused very carefully on the application of strict scrutiny in this context, in particular looking for narrow tailoring and the existence of race-neutral alternatives. You know, for some conservative justices, it may also mean simply illustrating that universities can achieve educational diversity in other ways without explicitly considering race as part of the admissions process. So I think, you know, different justices were looking at that issue through different lenses. It seemed like the justices were deeply divided down ideological lines. 
Well, generally speaking, there's a stark divide in the court in terms of how the justices look at this question of diversity and the interests in achieving diversity on college campuses and otherwise. And I think you saw that by the questioning that the justices had for the advocates. The more liberal justices obviously came at this issue from the perspective of there being a compelling interest in achieving diversity on college campuses and elsewhere, and you know whether or not they were able to persuade their more conservative colleagues. I'm not sure, but certainly that was one of the more interesting interplays going on throughout the oral arguments and reflects the sort of stark divide that the justices have on this issue. You argued the Fisher case, of course. And the three justices who dissented, the Chief Justice and Justices Thomas and Alito, are still on the court. Were they as stark in their questions and comments about using race to achieve diversity? Yes. I think, you know, from the standpoint of the more conservative justices, their position on this issue has been clear for some time. And I think that's true of Justice Thomas, although, as I recall, he did not ask questions during the Fisher argument, but but certainly Justice Alito. And even the Chief Justice, who is more moderate in a number of areas, but in this area has been very outspoken against the consideration of race and admissions. In this case, Justice Neil Gorsuch seemed to have a concern that, you know, using race is sort of, it's like a quota, a racial quota. Was that also a point in the Fisher arguments? So that was settled by Bakke that, that schools could not set actual quotas for admission spots based on race. But I think some of the justices had concerns that even the more holistic consideration of race, as in the Harvard or UNC policies, could operate as a quota. And, and you know, to the extent that the justices had those concerns, that's, that's a very you know problematic fact for the schools. There was a considerable amount of questioning about whether minority students could write in their essays about their experiences with race discrimination, and some of the conservative justices seemed to indicate that they could. Yeah, I think that was a very interesting and potentially quite important aspect of the oral argument. There seemed to be a majority of justices who were aligned against the use of race in a sort of check-the-box form as part of the admissions process. But but even those justices, or at least several of them, seem to indicate that an applicant could identify and speak about his or her race in the context of an essay that explained how the person's race affected their own experiences, perhaps led to greater grit or perseverance that would uh, be relevant to uh, considering who that person was. And they seem to indicate that that would be okay. And if that were the ultimate upshot of the court's opinion in the case, then at least in that sense, schools could consider applicants' race as they wrote about it in the context of a personal essay. The challengers here had argued that any consideration of race in college admissions is unlawful. During the oral arguments, their attorney at one point said that writing about it in an essay would be okay because that's cultural rather than racial. And Justice Elena Kagan said that's slicing the bologna a little thin, something along those lines. So do you think that the challengers were giving in on that point? They seem to go back and forth a bit 
on the question of whether or not race could be considered in the context of a personal essay. Towards the second argument, I think they seem to be willing to acknowledge that it might be appropriate in the context of an essay, at least depending on how it was used in describing the person's experiences and what he or she might bring to a college campus. But I do think that that was one of the more interesting and important exchanges throughout the oral argument. Certainly, that's something that the Chief Justice seemed to be interested in nailing down that the school might be able to consider an applicant's race in the context of a personal essay. Might that be sort of a middle ground for a decision here? It certainly could be a middle ground, and it could leave schools with an important tool for attempting to achieve educational diversity in the makeup of their student bodies, even if the court deems the consideration of a check-the-box use of race unconstitutional. Another area of questioning was when will affirmative action run its course? And some of the conservatives really pressed on that point. The chief justice asked the solicitor general, Grutter gave us a number. Do you want to give a number? Right. No number was given. No number. I think that was one of the more difficult parts of the argument for those defending the schools, including the government. And, you know, the conservative justices seem to expose a concern that if they were to adopt the positions of schools, they'd effectively be signing on to the indefinite use of race and even in a holistic fashion and student admissions, which they seemed uncomfortable with. This is the first time in history that a black female justice heard arguments on affirmative action. What stood out to you, if anything, about Justice Jackson's questions? She's obviously been extremely active at oral arguments, and, you know, she obviously brings her own experience more generally to, to this issue as in other areas. And so I, I think her questions were, you know, very poignant and important exchanges during the course of this lengthy oral argument. And she brought up the point with regard to writing about race on your application form that it would be odd if admissions officers could consider factors like whether an applicant's parents went to the school, whether they're veterans or disabled, but not that they're members of racial minorities. And she said that has the potential of causing more of an equal protection problem than it's actually solving. I think, as the Chief Justice pointed out later in the oral argument, the reason why the focus is on race is because race has a special role in the history of the country and the Constitution itself. But certainly from the perspective of the more progressive justices, I think, you know, one of the points that they made throughout was that, you know, race was simply being considered as part of many, many other factors about an individual applicant's profile. And so in that respect, wasn't really doing any different work than, than other factors. But again, I'm not sure that persuaded their more conservative colleagues. Do you have an idea for how you think this decision will work out? Do you think it'll be one of those decisions where there are a lot of concurring opinions and, you know, dissents? I think there's a lot of work left to be done on the court in terms of coming to a result in this case. And, you know, when- do you have any thoughts about how this decision might turn out? I think there's a lot of work left to be done on the court in terms of coming to a result in this case. And, you know, one of the more interesting aspects of the oral argument was there wasn't a lot of discussion of overruling prior precedent, which is, you know, something that is certainly a possibility on the table here. But 
even if the justices reach the conclusion that the particular plans here are unconstitutional, it remains to be seen what they'll do with their prior cases and what they might say about the use of race in different ways in order to achieve diversity among student bodies. And justices were coming at that from different perspectives on the court. I mean, certainly Justice Kavanaugh's questions about the possibility of race-neutral alternatives were important. And so even if it looks like an uphill battle for the defenders of the plans here, I think there's a lot that we'll have to wait for in terms of what this decision actually says. If the court does away with affirmative action by the end of this current term, it would be the second time in the space of a year that the conservative supermajority jettisoned decades of precedent. Will that be a consideration for the conservatives and perhaps particularly for the chief? Well, certainly any time the court considers overruling precedent, it's a momentous decision for the court, and the justices are well aware of that. I mean, this is an area where justices, even the chief justice, have been you know, openly critical of its prior precedent. So if it reached that conclusion, it wouldn't be out of the blue. But I think it's fair to say that you know all the justices are aware of the you know implications of overruling precedent. And I do think that there are a number of options that may be available to the court, you know, short of overruling all its precedent in this area. We'll know by June. Thanks so much, Greg. That's former U.S. Solicitor General Gregory Garr. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I've heard the word uh, diversity quite a few times, and I don't have a clue what it means. That was Justice Clarence Thomas, who's dissented in landmark affirmative action cases in oral arguments this week over the affirmative action programs at Harvard College and the University of North Carolina. Thomas was just one of the justices who questioned the role that diversity plays in a college education. My guest is Paulette Granberry-Russell, president of the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. Explain why diversity is important in colleges and universities. Diversity has previously been defined by the court as a compelling interest, meaning there are benefits that can be derived by having a diverse campus community. Those of us who are practitioners who lead and influence the efforts of colleges and universities in advancing diversity understand the value of a heterogeneous campus community, meaning diversity of thought, 
diversity of perspectives that are offered in and outside the classroom. That diversity, particularly if you think about it in the context of race and ethnicity, can facilitate breaking down stereotypes. It can also provide individuals an opportunity to engage in what higher ed has advocated, the robust exchange of ideas, which is the basis upon which the higher education exists. I've heard, you know, holistic admissions and race as a factor. How do they in general use race as a factor? There's no checkbox. There's no quota. Clearly, those have been banned by earlier precedents of the court. Race, and this was enunciated by Justice Powell in 1978 in the Bakke case, that in his view, race is only one, and I'm quoting, element in a range of factors a university properly may consider in attaining the goal of a heterogeneous student body. So there's no hard and fast formula for using race as one of many factors that you would consider, but it's not ignoring the role that race has played in influencing potentially the experiences of individuals. So if a student who's interested in admission chooses to speak to any aspect of their life, including race, that has provided them with perspectives or impacted their experiences, that the admissions as a part of their process may take that into consideration. The justices were exploring the use of race-neutral policies in admission, you know, considering socioeconomic status or admitting the top performers at high schools. Is that another way of doing this? I'll offer this perspective here as the president of the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. We do not believe that there's any real replacement for race-conscious admissions, meaning what is often referred to as race-neutral approaches. Now, the court has previously addressed this and that the process that you use to consider race must stand under the closest scrutiny by the court. But, you know, race-neutral approaches, as the evidence in these cases, both Harvard and UNC, have demonstrated that they are not successful in necessarily achieving the goal of racially, ethnically diverse campus communities. They are helpful, absolutely. But the goal is to enhance the opportunities for students to engage across culture, across perspectives, across background and experience to learn from each other, to understand that no one perspective is the final perspective. It can be persuasive. And that includes perspectives based on one's experiences because of the way that race influences experiences in this country. So to use race neutral to say, you know, we'll consider socioeconomic class, that as argued and in evidence is not successful in achieving the goals of institutions. It adds to it, but it doesn't necessarily provide the composition of racially, ethnically composed class that would achieve the goals of those institutions. The justice has asked a lot of questions about what the end date for affirmative action programs is. And we're fast approaching the date that in Grutter, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor said affirmative action would no longer be needed. So what's the end date? The justice has asked a few of the lawyers that, and there was no answer to that question. Well, I do think that the lawyer for the SSFA did respond to that. And his point was 
that and, and acknowledge himself that year, that 25-year expectations identified in the earlier case, that that number, and I'm quoting from him because I listened to the oral argument, that number is aspirational, okay? So there's no hard and fast rule that one can point to in Gruder that clearly specified that in 25 years, it must end. You know, this this notion that using race as one of many factors in a, quite frankly, in, in a country where we have worked particularly hard to address becoming a more diverse country, recognizing and respecting the role that race has played in this country, acknowledging the disadvantages that still persist as a country that has as a part of its history, slavery, enslavement of Black people, that to the extent that we are seeking aspirationally to move beyond that history, perhaps in 25 years, we want to anticipate or expect in 25 years, we no longer have to do this. I think it is expected that the consideration of race in admissions is time limited. The question is, are we there yet? And based on the evidence presented by UNC and Harvard, we are not there yet. Will you explain why, you know, so many companies submitted briefs warning that without affirmative action, they'll lose access to this pipeline of future workers? I think in the, in the absence of um, diversity and the consideration of race, carefully constructed consideration of race. Um, we, I, I think the, the concern of corporations is that their efforts to um, speak to the innovations that are well-documented, that result from having a diverse uh, employee base, which includes racially diverse which could include, of course, gender um, and disabilities, um, sexual orientation, gender identity, a whole range of ways that those experiences can influence. It doesn't mean that um, this notion of race in and of itself represents a particular point of view, but it represents a, a varied amount of perspective. And those perspectives influence how people engage with each other. It, it forces people from time to time in those spaces where you're debating how you're going to approach uh, circumstances, uh, whether that is promoting sales, whether that is uh, influencing um, media, whether that is um, enhancing opportunities in a broader community that those perspectives, particularly in this context of, of racial perspectives, or uh, not racial perspectives, but perspectives that can be influenced by one's race and experiences, need a place at the table as well. If we take a look at the impact of a pandemic and acknowledging that uh, there were certain communities, black and brown communities, particularly who were disproportionately impacted uh, by race and health outcomes associated with their race. That signals that race still matters in this country, 
Now, it's not saying that only black and brown folks have influenced the science around uh, medicine, but those perspectives have a place at the table. You know, it, it extends thinking about communities that may not otherwise be present in those conversations. Um, it breaks down stereotypes. Um, and, and so what corporations and the military, uh, particularly if you, if you look at the military brief, the goal was, you know, what's the composition of the military? At some ranks, black and brown folks are very well represented in those ranks, but they're not necessarily represented in officer ranks. And sometimes the failure to have a more racially diverse leadership can be to the detriment of perspectives that might otherwise be brought to bear in the experiences of those at the other ranks. So it's, it's this goal of, of enhancing both opportunities, but also uh, experiences and the way that those experiences can influence decision-making. Thanks for being on the show. That's Paulette Granberry-Russell, president of the National Association of Diversity Officers in Higher Education. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple like as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.